Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. Well, good morning. It's a beautiful day out there. Appreciate the happy worshipers that are with us this morning. And this is Holy Week. This is one of the most important weeks of the Christian life. It's on the Christian calendar. And this is event. This is there are things that we are thinking about and pondering uh, based on the truths of God and the Word of God and based on how Christ has come into this world to redeem sinful man. So I just am praying for you guys, for all of us this week, that we would honor him and that God would do a great work in our lives and as we come together in the name of Christ. Well, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Just imagine with me that you, you just bought some new land. It's, say, it's several acres. And uh, you're out walking your new land, looking around. You happen to see a little something shiny, some shiny glass sticking out of the ground. And it's just barely the, the head of a bottle. And that excites you because you're a bottle collector. And so you run over to it, and a lot of times you'll see little pieces of bottle sticking out of the ground, and you go to dig around, and it's broken, it's worthless. But this particular piece of bottle is sticking to the ground. You carefully scratch away the dirt from the surface and get a little deeper, and you dig and dig and scratch. And lo and behold, it is a fully intact bottle, and it's old, and so you just have a new bottle to add to your precious collection because these kind of things are valuable to you. And as you're admiring your new Bible, uh, your your new bottle, uh, you look down and you see some other little shiny sparkles in the ground that you had just pushed away and come to find out that you have found an old home site dump. And the more you dig around in there, you find trash, people's trash that turned out to be your treasures, more bottles. When I look at these six verses in Corinthians, I see them like that because they're an interesting combination of words and, and arguments of thoughts that the Apostle Paul is sharing with us, but, but on the surface. But when, when you scratch away a little bit and think about what he's actually stating, there's a sense in which you hit the jackpot with God's truths. Uh, there's a sense in which we, we can hit the jackpot with what God is speaking to our hearts and our minds just in a few verses here in these scriptures. So I want to read them to you this morning, but I'm mostly going to concentrate on 3 to 6, really 3 and 4. But I do want to read them in their entirety. Paul, myself, entreat you by the weakness, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us, who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We've talked about this last time. The immediate context of these verses is Paul's making, he's having to defend himself because of false accusations, people that have come into the church at Corinth, unfortunately, and they're trying to undo his work. They're trying to smear him and slander him. And he is doing what he doesn't like to do. He's talking about himself. But it's in order to offend himself so he still has some authority in order to preach the gospel, in order to share God's truth. There's some legitimacy right there. So we talked about that language uh, of an accused apostle, and that's what he's doing here. And it's um, just that in and of itself is intriguing to me. We recently talked about in our covenant class series about inspiration, God's word. God's word is that what we have here is inspired by God. It's not from man, but man is involved in it. But the result is 100 percent God. And how intriguing it is if you look at this passage and it's just a man defending his apostleship. And yet in it, we just find the truths of God flowing in this river of real life circumstances. This is a real man defending himself against real accusations. And yet the, the divine word of God just flows all through it. So we've also seen that what this becomes, the apostle Paul tells us, it's not just this little surface duke out. Or a smear campaign, it goes way, way deeper as we scratch the surface here. And he calls it a war. There's a divine war taking place. And the the battleground in this case is the mind of man. And Paul is using military terminology here. And he's saying that when, when anybody, or at least in this circumstance, but we understand it, when anybody has thoughts or ideas, philosophies, arguments, opinions that are against the knowledge of God, there's a war here. It's causing a friction. Why is it causing friction? Well, because Christ, as we have learned, is Lord of all. Absolute sovereignty, you might say. He's Lord of all, and that means everything is subject to him, including the thoughts of his creatures, the thoughts, the very ideas and the things that flow in and out of our minds are, are to be subject to Christ. And there's friction in the world and there's friction in our own lives because not all of our thoughts, not of all of our positions are indeed in line with the knowledge of God and the truth of God. So there's this state of friction And he says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Really what we celebrated here this morning in Palm Sunday in Holy Week is what? It's a celebration of the praise that took place when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And Noah quoted Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9, and he he quoted a few more verses. But in in essence, it says, Behold your king, O daughters of Zion, rejoice. And they are rejoicing. Why? Because the king has come into the city. And now that is a statement. That means that in world events, way back then, there's this little thing that happened, this little world event that happened in, in and near the city of Jerusalem. And Kevin wrote, 
read that passage too. The last city that I think that you, or the last little town that you uh, would enter through on your way to Jerusalem. The, the, the world event that took place is that this man is fulfilling the knowledge of God, the prophecy of God of what will take place. And he is coming into this city as the king. And when you unfold the other prophecies and things that God says about this man and this king, you come find out he's not just the king of Jerusalem. He is the king of all things, of all creation. He is God the Son. And as God the Son, he deserves a level of worship. And that includes our minds, not just material real estate, not just behavior, not just surface things. But tracing those surface things all the way down to the core of our heart and our mind and our thoughts. And, and there's a battle up here. In order to get the behavior out here, there's a battle up here that needs to be won. And it's to be won according to the knowledge of God. In other words, God has a lot to say. And he's revealed it to us in his word. And what he says is it's a whole story about all of our existence and all of creation. It's his narrative. And he's asking us to look at everything, ourselves, the world, our relationships, to look at him, the sky, the stars, everything according to his narrative because he set it all in motion. And you can either be right or wrong about it. And he wants us to be right about it, obviously because it honors him. But to be right about God and to think according to the knowledge of God only benefits us as well. And that's the beauty of this king. The beauty of this king is that, yes, he has boundaries to his kingdom and rules and regulations, but all of them, when obeyed, actually set us free. Because to not obey those is to live in error, is to live according to a false story or a false narrative. Now, practically speaking, what this would mean is that we would do the hard mental work, the hard mental work of of filtering our thoughts and holding them up against lining them up against the, the knowledge of God and how close am I to this? And wow, that sounds enticing. Should I chase after that? What does God have to say about this? And it's working through these things. Uh, it's, it can be a grueling process, especially for, for those of us where using our minds is really hard work. Now, some of us can't turn our minds off. And we love the thoughts to come and go. And it's very, it's very stimulating. And others are like, man, I don't want to have to think about anything. Well, we do have to. If we're Christians, guess what? To the magnitude that we're able, we have to think about everything in our lives. As grueling as it may be, it is so important that we can trace down thoughts And evaluate things according to the knowledge of God because we can be wrong. I like what Paul said in um, Romans 3. I believe it's in verse 4. He's talking to Jewish people, his his fellow kinsmen. And he's saying that you have been, as Jews, you've been given the oracles of God. You've been given the oracles of God. God has spoken and, and he's used you to compile them. And then, but, but they got them wrong. They got, he also acknowledges that his own people, the people that have been given the oracles of God have gotten them 
wrong. So what do you do with the unfaithfulness there, the disloyalty to the people who have the oracles of God and yet do not properly obey them? He says, let every man be a liar and God be true. So it's like the, the story of God, the knowledge of God. We may get it wrong. Even God's people may get it wrong. But that doesn't mean it's not true. We can butcher it up. We can slice and dice it. We can manipulate the truth. Doesn't make it untrue. No matter how confused we are. No matter how rebellious we are. The words of God, the truth of God, the knowledge of God is good. It's pleasing. It's liberating. So I think everybody would agree that um, with a statement that bad ideas have bad consequences. If you start out with something bad, you can't expect to end with something good outside the grace or the power of God. So I think most people in this world would agree with that statement. What we don't agree on is what is bad. We don't agree on what is bad. So just keep it to our own culture. Today, you can read any article, you can look at almost any news report, and you will see that people don't agree on what is really bad, what is really evil in our world. And the problem with that is that the consequence is, therefore, if we can't agree on what's bad, then that means we don't agree on what's good either. So we have good and bad in different places, and and there's a lot of confusion about it. And I would say that not being able to agree on what's truly good and what's truly bad is bad. That puts us in a bad place, right? Because there's consequences to bad ideas. There has to be a foundation. There has to be something by which humanity can build upon in order to make anything better. In order to make anything better, we have to agree agree on what is good, what is better, based on these things that we can build upon. I mean, personally, I'd like to hang out with people that where we can come together and say, you know, that's a really good thing. Let's see what we can do to get more of that. Or I want to hang out with a group of people that said, that is a bad thing. Let's see what we can do to make less of that. In order to even have that kind of thinking or create that kind of community, there needs to be some foundation where we can dig down to the bottom and agree on something. That's why Paul's using the language of war. When you talk about weapons, he's talking about a siege. He's talking about pulling down fortresses and walls to to overcome the enemy. And if there's any captives in there, to liberate the captives. So according to this passage, the ultimate battle is right in here of all places. Thinking man, I made mention of last time. Thinking man, creating the image of God, we problem solve. We wrestle with things. Every day we're wrestling with things. We're, we're, we're trying to make what we think are good or wise decisions. It's thinking man. We're built like that. Unfortunately, our sin nature has impacted our ability to draw right conclusions. It's, it's amazing to me how sin makes us naive. Boy, can we be naive. I can't tell you how many times I've chased after the wrong thing. 
that I had already chased after the wrong thing. I just like become naive and sins out there again. And then, oh, it won't be so bad. And we can't afford to be naive in our thinking. And the power of God enables us to to, to rein in and get closer and closer to the core. So we can be wrong about things. We can also be rebellious about things. It's not just a matter about why I didn't connect all the dots and I got that answer wrong. It's about, well, actually, I know the right answer, but I'm not going to live according to it. It's all wrapped up in here in this battle that Paul's talking about. So if you wanted to kind of summarize where we've been and what I'm talking about, the, the idea, the argument is made that God created everything. That's implicit in this. I mean, if you... If, if he's saying you have to, every, every thought has to be captive to this one being, that's sovereignty. That's absolute sovereignty. That's lordship, kingship. And the idea is God created us. And so uh, we, are, we are, should be beholding of the fact that he even brought us into existence and live according to how we were created to live. It is do him. Copyright laws, you might say. He created us to think and behave in a certain way. And then also, of course, he is Lord. And as the Lord, he besieges our hearts as a general would besiege a city that's being taken captive by air, by wrong thinking. And he wants to take us further and further deeper into his territory. The other two points I want to look at in this passage and concentrate on this morning. And I, I try to kind of keep them separate, but I'm just going to blur them together. Um, it, was too, it was too difficult to keep them separate because, because it regards the mind. So we have the language of the mind and then the language of a conquered heart. And in, in the Bible, the mind and the heart are basically the same thing. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul says, we're not, that's not how we wage war. The weapons of our warfare, we're talking about the kingdom of God, aren't of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Interesting word. That's a military word. We destroy arguments. So those are the strongholds. And lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. See, we, we can't really make sense of the world that we live in if we don't in some way agree with this statement. There are things going on in people's heads. And it's a battle and it's a fight. And if Jesus really is Lord and we believe he is, then this is happening. It's happening out there. It's happening in here. It's happening in here and it's happening in my own mind. There's a war for rightness, for correctness, a war for glory, proper glory. The things that pass through our minds were players players in this and sometimes we feel exhausted because we're we're fighting against the king and other times we couldn't be more peaceful because it we're just in line with God's truth for our lives so two things I want to notice and pretty much camp on for the rest of this morning we destroy there's two things arguments and every lofty opinion raised against God. What God knows, what God is, God's truth. Now notice that they are raised against God. 
That's why it's language of war. Because God has truth, and yet in our minds, we, in, in some sense or form or fashion, are against it. It's not neutral. It's being against these things. And the first things are arguments. Arguments, what, what is the stronghold of arguments? Well, we, we all live based on arguments or positions that we have adopted for ourselves that we think are the right way to go or that at least benefit us the most. They're what we want. They're positions. Uh, they're strategies. We've, we've looked at the evidence, so to speak. We've, we've considered the facts. We've interpreted them, and we've landed our lives in a certain position that causes us to want to seek certain things, to say yes to things and no to other things. Our, our assumptions, our positions, our statements... It's our excuse for doing what we do. We are thinking man. And so all of our daily choices, you know, to, we have a position for why we came to church this morning. It, it's filtered into our lifestyle. And we have made it a priority. And there's a reason why we've done that. There's, there are facts that we put together in life. And we came to the conclusion, at least for today, I need to be at New Covenant this morning. It wasn't just a whim. It was a conscious effort that we have weighed through and landed on that position. So there's always arguments are what's um, under the surface of why we do what we do, our positions. We're raised with them. Uh, We adopt them all along the way. We're, We're introduced to all different kinds of arguments and ideas and lifestyles, and we're just, we're adopting certain things. All along the way. So just for example of, of different ideas and what's behind, what are behind things. Let's say there's a good old country boy raised in the South. Raised in the South and he was uh, taught to believe in the Bible. And he believed in, in his parents and, and their authority. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And he he grew up believing that sex outside of marriage is wrong because the Bible says it's wrong and my parents says it's wrong and I trust them. They've always treated me right and they've always been honest with me and so it's just not the right thing to do in life. You should get married. That's the place for it. So this guy moved to the big city He lands a job fresh out of high school and now he makes new friends and there's a whole different set of assumptions and arguments and reasons for why people do and don't do things. And one of the things that he notices about his new set of friends, both male and female, is that the females keep coming on to him. And so he asks his new bros, what's up with this? And they begin to explain to him how things are done there. Well, you see, there's. You said, what, what's, "What's up with this? Uh, this doesn't seem right here. I, I, why are these all these girls after me?" Well, what's wrong with that? You see, in the city, that's perfectly fine. There's not a thing wrong with it. Matter of it's good for you. You you thought that sex outside of marriage was a good thing, but really, that's bondage and. In order, it's foolishness, in fact. And in order for you to even know who's the right one to marry, you need to experiment. 
as long as everything is consensual, then it's all good. And so that's the explanation there. So now poor Bubba, he has to think hard. Because he's like, well, wait a minute. I grew up with this and my parents told me, did they lie to me and my whole whole Christian community? And now I got these new friends. And is that right? I mean, surely tempting to, to believe this. And there's lots of opportunity. So what do I do? Well, there's arguments, there's assumptions behind what he's facing on the surface that would enable someone to come to a decision, hopefully according to the knowledge of God. So the argument behind his position is that, well, I am accountable to God for my life. There's an authority to which I'm accountable. The city's position or or his new friends don't believe in accountability like that. It is whatever's consensual. It's, it's whatever feels right to me. There is no accountability. You just do what you think will fulfill you the most. So there's, there's underlying arguments, right, to begin with that are opposed to each other. Higher standard versus I am the standard. Now, Bubba's really torn up because he realizes that the decision that he makes is going to affect his life and all of his relationships. If he goes the way of the city, it's going to really cause strain at home and with the parents and the family that he loves. If he doesn't, will he fit in to his new place that he lives? What will pe- how will people look? So there's consequences to the decision, life-altering consequences just to this one decision about why are all these girls hitting on me? All the arguments, all the battles that happen in our minds. So we can't make decisions based uh, that aren't based on some kind of assumptions. We have to think through. And, and God is always pushing us to do that. He's pushing our minds um, into uncomfortable positions that cause us to face what is true. He doesn't want us living in la-la land. There's arguments for and there's arguments against belief systems. One of the things that I think is most harmful, by the way, to our culture today, this is a novel idea, but one of the things I think is is so harmful is that, by and large, our culture, we're not teaching our children to know how to think. We're teaching them what to think. That's considered education today is for me to just give you the answers instead of equipping you with the ability to look at the the facts and come to a conclusion on your own based on right thinking and critical thinking skills. And it's it's non-conducive to a flourishing society when we can no longer think for ourselves because then we all just blindly follow after what the elites or the intelligentsia tell us to believe. And that's not a a good setup when we find that people are just blindly following after things and getting passionate about things because they're told that that's right rather than having the skills to actually think for themselves. And you might say, well, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible do the same thing? Doesn't God just tell us to blindly step out in blind faith and believe him? No, he does tell us to believe him. He tells us, but he tells us that he's always right. But he wants us as his created beings to use our God-given minds and brains to to experience the truth of the world. So 
Uh, in Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We're using our brains to test and approve. It's an experience, a real life experience where we have the eureka moment. Ah, yes. Now I see. Now we're just seeing the the truth that God has created or his being, but we see it for ourselves. He wants us to own it and embrace it, not just to blindly follow it. We see this in our lives. We see these things in our in our culture, in our post-Christian culture. So there's a lot of different arguments. There's a lot of different assumptions out there. And as believers who want to line ourselves up with the knowledge of God, we have to think through the things that are con- we're bombarded with. So, for instance, some of the, the thinking today regards um, the argument of assisted suicide. Assisted suicide. So we hear a very compelling stance. It hits our heads. We got to think about it. Well, the compelling stance is that it is absolutely inhumane for people to suffer to certain degrees. It's just ruthless. In fact, it's immoral. It's immoral that anybody would ask of any other creature or person to remain in a state of suffering, the humane moral thing to do is to relieve them of their suffering. Now, that is a powerful argument. Admit it. I admit it. And, and I picture somebody in terrible agony, and why should they exist? But what are the assumptions behind that compelling argument? Because you don't just come to these conclusions. Well, one assumption is that suffering, human suffering, has no value. There's no value in it. Nothing good can come out of human suffering. That's the assumption, right? So the right thing to do is to end it. The other assumption is that there is absolutely no joy that can be experienced. There's no good thing in life that can be experienced when humans undergo a certain level of suffering. Well, we have to decide, is that true? Is suffering bad? Is all suffering bad? Can anyone experience any quality of life or joy in their suffering. There's another assumption here, and that is that when a person dies, their suffering is relieved. So think about the assumptions here. First of all, one assumption is, well, that means that every human being that dies goes to a better place. Maybe it's annihilation or maybe it's universal salvation. I don't know. But the assumption is we're going to relieve this person, this poor soul. Well, what about the assumption of the afterlife? Uh, Well, wait a minute. If certain belief systems are true, it's possible, if I don't know where this person stands in their beliefs, that they may be going to a place of even further, more severe suffering. So you see just in that one argument that is presented to us in one way that seems right and moral. There's more to it. There's arguments. There's assumptions that we have to think hard about and line up with God's word. That's our job as his children. What is the most 
immoral? Is it possible that a life in and of itself, even a suffering life, has great value? People are, are so certain about assisted suicide being the moral thing to do, and yet a lot of this thinking, are, it's coming from a people who don't even believe in absolute morality. Like there is no absolute truth. There's, we can't really be certain about these things, but we can be certain about this. You see how inconsistent that is? It's amusing and it's frustrating to me how our cultural one hand talks about truth. All truth is relative. We can't be certain about anything. And yet, boy, it's so certain about certain things. And they, they want to corral us and peer pressure us into things. I recently watched a... Uh, a TED talk, these little talks out there, uh, caught my attention because it says, why does the universe exist? Who doesn't want to know why the universe exists, right? So, okay, I fell for it and I listened to it. And the guy, it was a 20-minute talk and the guy was really sharp. He was very kind. Um, he presented different ideas and beliefs of why the universe existed. He included theism in there, he was a philosopher, an author. He knew the positions. He presented them well. He presented the theistic position well. He was articulate. And after the 20-minute lecture that I listened to, his conclusion was an affirmative. We don't know. Why is there something rather than nothing? We, we don't know. We, we can't know. We just don't. No, there is, and we know a whole lot about what is, the isness of it, but we don't know why there is something as opposed to nothing. Now, that's thinking through things, right? And we need to think through these things. But it's sad to me, it's sad to me that level-headed and intelligent, sincere, well-documented people can live a life having no idea of why we're here, what we're supposed to do. All, we, all I can know is what's happening. Now, that's not according to the knowledge of God. My belief system says that we do know why we're here. It's interesting. The, um, do you remember the, your kids when they were younger? Why? Time to go to bed. Why? You got to eat your peas. Why? Don't hit your sister. Why? All these things we want to know. We, we, we just, because we, we need to know what, what am I walking on here? What am I living in here? How does life work? Why? And yet, the, some of the best minds cannot answer that question. It's a conflict. There's a war. There's a battle. Going on. So if we don't know why we're here, then how can we know our purpose, our boundaries, how to act? You know, we have to make them up as we go, right? Trial and error. That's what we see in our post-Christian culture. I grew up, I was born in the 60s. Born in the 60s. I just missed the hippie era. I, I, I watched it from little child's eyes. And it was scary, by the way. So thanks. If you're older than me, thanks for scaring me to death <laughs> with your hippie stuff and your drugs and all that. Because 
I was scared of the psychedelic. Anyway, so I was born in the 60s. From about the 50s to the 80s, we were constantly told about the threat of overpopulation. I mean, it was drilled into my head. We are going to run out of resources. There's not enough resources in this world for the the rate that our population is growing. We're going to self-extinct. And so the idea was don't have children because we'll wind up killing ourselves. And so I'm, I'm hearing it from a kid's perspective, but in the colleges there were professors that were literally telling their college students, it is selfish for you to have children. You have to care about others. It is immoral for you to be so selfish and plan a big family when the planet, humanity, all of humanity is at stake. See, these are arguments and assumptions. People are taking scientific facts or facts and they are interpreting them and ranging them to a certain to a certain conclusion or argument. And that was the argument. So now what what really happened, what we see today is that. We don't have enough people. Oops. We don't have enough people in the world because people actually took that argument serious. Now, some people were just kind of peer pressured not to have children, but there were nations that came up with policies about not having children. And now what we see is that there's not enough of a new generation come to fulfill the workforce for economies can collapse and elderly aren't being taken care of. And it's a huge mess. How we look at the facts of what the is, is, matters. It's a battle of a mind. How we interpret things. Now, we have the blessing of God's word. We have the blessing of God's truth. We don't have all the answers, but what we do have is enough to be godly, to live before him as a witness that God is the truth. Today's argument isn't overpopulation. It's the climate. Now, I'm not here to argue about, I'm not an expert on these things, but as we hear the big arguments about, see, today, the, the, the planet is the victim. The planet is dying. And you're the perpetrators. I'm a perpetrator. I am killing the planet. The planet wants to live. The planet doesn't want to die. Well, who speaks for the planet? I never heard the planet say anything to me. Or is it possible that there are people drawing conclusions about what the planet may want and may not want and being the planet's spokesperson? We have to be careful about these kind of things. Assumptions, arguments. Keller says, Paul says, Jesus Christ will always come and show you your faith assumptions and show you they're inferior. They don't explain reality like Christianity does. You can't really live cons- consistently with it. And the point Jesus Christ will always make you, the point is that he will always make you think in order to win your heart. We can't outrun the truth. We've been trying to outrun the truth since the beginning of time. We cannot outrun the truth. We are liberated by running to the truth. God is truth. Let me give you a scriptural example of what's the language of a conquered heart. What would it look like or what might it sound like? Here's a psalmist. Psalm 119. 
Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. That's the language of a conquered heart. That's the language of a a man that knows, I I think hard, I try to get everything right, but I'm going to fail. I know myself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at what I know is right. And I'm going to study that. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to embrace you. I'm going to... I'm going to know and assume and live my life like this is the truth and this is what I need more of than anything else. He loves it. He doesn't want to be enslaved to error. Arguments. And they're lofty opinions. Lofty opinions aren't so much the arguments of the facts. They're more the attitude. And it's the attitude of arrogance. That's the lofty part of the opinion. These are arrogant opinions. These are the opinions that are just... It doesn't matter if I know right from wrong. I'm going to choose to do what I want to do. And there's a battle for this too. This is nothing innocent about this. I willfully refuse to believe the truth. The facts alone have not compelled me. They don't want to admit. It's the suppression we learned about in Romans. God makes us think. And humility of mind is a great attitude to have when we read the Word of God and present ourselves before God. I remember um, when the gospel was first preached to me, I, you know, it's like I, I didn't really care about it. I had my own lifestyle, I had my own arguments. The way I thought life ought to work was benefiting me the most. So I just kind of sloughed it off. But then the Word of God kind of hooked me like, like a fish hook. And I couldn't push it away anymore. And, it, and I went from a place of, well, maybe, and, and if so, I don't really care. I went to a place of that to, uh-oh, that's true. Now, now I look at the world and I see that those little truths about sin and righteousness and the sovereignty of God and Christ and the cross and denying yourself, that is like my new reality. So then, what did I do? I still didn't embrace it. Why? Because I didn't want to. It was the rebellion. It was the lofty opinion. I pushed it back as long as I could take it. And God allowed me to be the king of my own life for that period to show me how, what a terrible king I was of my own life. To show me how I couldn't even attain my own goals of life. And he, you, he let me, he gave me free reign to live out the own reality of my lostness and my need for him. And then God swooshed, swooshed in and saved me from that foolish, foolishness of undermining myself. When I was a young Christian, he mostly humbled me by showing me how foolish I was. Yeah, <sighs> failed that. Now, as I have matured, he mostly humbles me By revealing how merciful and magnificent and majestic and worthy he is. That transition has taken place. So it's it's not my foolishness as much as his greatness that humbles me today. Because along the, the way he's been pulling down my foolishness and opening my eyes to his greatness. And so now the life I want 
I don't focus on myself as much. Now I want to seek him. And I realize that I can't even know myself without knowing God. He's conquered my heart. Because that's my life now. I wrestle with everything. I evaluate everything according to the standard of God. He's won my heart in that way. And to not do it now is a terribly foolish thing. A humble heart in God's truth is a perfect match. He continues to grow us in knowledge. And we are not to underestimate Him. Because... He will do what needs to be done as long as it takes to conquer our hearts. I think about as we wind down, when I was a teenager and came to Christ, I had my own world go. You know how teenagers think. And I, was, I had my little cowboy attitude on top of that. I had everything all figured out. And my, my simple way of thinking. And yet God met me where I was in my simple way of thinking. And he just won it over. It doesn't matter where we are on that scale. We all have, we're all thinking man. And God will come into our minds. And he'll push and he'll shove. And and he'll reveal through the power, this divine power that the Apostle Paul is talking about to win our hearts. So, as we close, this passage is a gracious reminder of God's grace and our need to surrender. God is there for us. He is the, the Lord that liberates. Have I accepted the Christian faith or am I still pushing it away? I know it's true. Where are we? Do I not care about it? Or are we where I was for a short time where, yeah, I know it's true, but I'm resisting it. That's not a good place to be. I know from experience. Do we love him and his truth? Or are we just in love with a feeling? There are lots of people who love the feeling of God, or they love certain aspects of God, but they don't obey His law. There's no obedience to it. And we expect God to be there for us and care for Him all the time running away. Do I want Him but not His rules? Those are the decisions that we have to make. And when we do submit to Him, we're going to have to think. We're going to have to just, he's going to keep shaking us to get at the bottom of all the assumptions that are in our head that aren't right. Whether it's about parenting, whether it's about marriage, whether it's about faith, religion, politics, whatever it is. He's going to keep shaking us so we get to the bottom of things. So that we can be a vessel that glorifies him in spirit, in truth. So we just want to ask ourselves, is every thought captive? Because that's what Christ is after. May God bless the preaching of his word.